Hello and thank you for downloading the 9% Event podcast. Shortly you'll hear an introduction from me, Georgina, followed by Fal Blake, founder of Brighton Taylor Gresham Blake, Emma Smith from gaming studio Creative Assembly and Rachel Adams, commissioning editor, business and finance at The Telegraph. This event took place on the 11th of May at 68 Middle Street in Brighton. There are around 40 women in the room who have just spent an hour chatting, networking and sampling beers brewed by female brewers with Bison Beer Bottle Shop in Hove. To paint a picture of the scene for you, while Fall is talking, there is a constant stream of fashion shoots and celebrities wearing Gresham Blake designs on the screen playing behind her, including Norman Cook, Davina McCall, Barbara Windsor, Sue Perkins, Adrian Lester, Nick Cave and many more. During Emma's talk, the first line she uses during the section about common misconceptions about careers in gaming, the slide says, making games isn't a real career. You will need to know this during the podcast. I hope you enjoy the podcast. If you did, a five-star rating would be very welcome. And if you're interested in finding out more about the 9% event, please do search for us on Facebook and like the page to stay updated. So say hello to everybody and thank you so much for coming along to the 9% event tonight. Um, I really hope that the networking was useful and interesting and that everybody tried some beer and had a good chat. It sounded quite noisy in there, so I'm thinking it all went well. Um, This is the second one of the series and we've got some familiar faces here tonight and we've got some new ones. So I'm delighted to see familiar faces again. Uh, For the new people, the reason that the event isn't mixed gender is the 9% event is named after the UK gender pay gap. and I feel there's a real need for a community of women in business to support and empower each other. Um, I looked up some statistics tonight before I, well, before I got the speakers. And I thought, mm, everyone's quite, it's very much like male-dominated industries that we're going for. But is it really that male-dominated? And so I looked up and I found out that um, 89% of software developers in gaming are male. Um, and that while more women than men actually enter journalism as a profession, 78% of front page bylines are written by male journalists and 81% of lead stories were written by men compared to 19% of women. So my answer to my own question, which was, yes, it is still quite male-dominated. <laughs> um, so this is, you know, there's a real need for inspirational women setting examples, I think, of how gender or industry or expectation shouldn't hinder achievement of your goals and your dreams within your chosen industry. And everybody who's speaking tonight, the three women who are speaking, are shining examples of exactly that. Um, I really believe that you cannot be what you cannot see, which is a popular phrase that everybody has heard, I'm sure. But how are you ever going to be successful if you don't see other women blazing a trail for you? Um, finally, I looked up uh, female tailors and the first result was uh, Fal Blake at Gresham Blake, so I thought, <laughs> who better to start us off? So um, I'm going to introduce Fal, she's the founding partner along with her husband, um, <laughs> and I'm sure anyone with Brightonites will have walked past their amazing window displays in the North Lanes, they're really an iconic part of Brighton, so over to you, Fal. Thank you, thank you. Right, so, hi everyone, my name is Fal Blake. And alongside my husband, we set up our business, Gresham Blake. That's me. <laughs> Gresham Blake is a clothing brand. We started off as a bespoke tailors, and we introduced ready-to-wear accessories to complement our style and design. Now, I didn't start my career off in the fashion industry at all. I met Gresham in 1992 at the Zack Club. We were both students, <laughs> and I was studying chemistry at the time. Gresham went on to do a degree in, chem- in, fa- in fashion design at Brighton. Now, when I graduated, I went on to get my dream job in the marketing team for a pharmaceutical industry 
extremely well paid, all the perks, all the benefits, my own car, my own computer, my own mobile phone, which was a massive big deal in those days. <laughs> I worked with them with my steady pay increases and my cushy little job for five years. But over this time, I started to get more and more demoralised. Firstly, by the corruption of working for a pharmaceutical giant. In those days, the pharmaceutical industry was much more unregulated and it was shocking how corrupt that industry was. Secondly, with the bullshit and bureaucracy that I had to deal with every single day of my job. Thirdly, by working in such a corporate environment where I was very much restricted in what I could do and certainly in what I could achieve. Now, I did achieve quite a lot and I got a number of meaningless trophies. Um, my highlight was making page three in the Shoreham Herald <laughs> for my company raising the funds to provide a scanner for the prostate department at Worthing Hospital. Now, my company purchased this so that the doctors would prescribe the drugs my company was making, not because the drug was the best on the market, and that was, for me, quite soul-destroying, but it did make my sales hit the roof. So, as a consequence, I was making a lot of money, and I was able to buy a property in central Brighton. Now, having said that, the properties were a lot cheaper then, and my first flat only cost £18,000. Now, while Gresham was studying, he'd already started our business and he was making suits for friends and family. When he graduated, he went on to work for military tailors in Savile Row. However, his dream was to set up a bespoke tailors in Brighton. At that time, we were, we were living in a lovely four-storey house in the centre of Brighton in Hanover that quickly mounted up a lot of equity. So we sold it and that's what we used in terms of the funding to set up our own business. And that's when we purchased our first little shop in Bond Street in Brighton. Gresham quickly convinced me to take a sabbatical of two months. Gresham was very good at the design and tailoring side of things, but not so much the sales. I was extremely passionate about my husband's tailoring skills. And so I was very good at selling this. I was also surprisingly knowledgeable in this field too by then, as I had been alongside Gresham through all of his training, and in, in, inadvertently I'd learnt a lot of skills by then. Now, traditionally, bespoke tailoring is very male-dominated and very, very posh. Gresham only ticked one of those boxes. <laughs> so here I was, now running my own bespoke tailors in the centre of Brighton. And I, I had a few traits that didn't quite fit into that mould. Firstly, I'm female. Secondly, I'm not white. Thirdly, I'm very vertically challenged. <laughs> but what I did have was a heck of a lot of determination in believing what we wanted to do. I also loved wearing the clothes the Gresham made me. And I felt that when you wear something, and I still do, that fits and that can really, really boost your confidence in so many, so many more ways than you can imagine. And I really wanted to break that stuffy men's club mentality of this type of product. We wanted to provide a very approachable tailoring service that, to anyone that was interested in style and design. Funny enough, when we first had this vision, 
A number of people advised us back then not to set up a business in Brighton, such a business in Brighton, as who would want to be spokesuit in Brighton? But in fact, setting up in Brighton was the best thing we did, as the people in Brighton are a lot more clued up and open to new ways of thinking. A number of people have subsequently said to me that if you, work, if you can make a business work in Brighton, you can make it work anywhere else in the world. <coughs> and a few weeks ago, I read in The Guardian that Brightonians are definitely the toughest customers. So I'm definitely not what you would expect as your bespoke consultant if you went into Savile Row. And over the years, I've definitely surprised a number of my clients at that first consultation when I've said that I'll be looking after them today. However, what I have found is what people want is simply people that are very dedicated to what they do and have skills and knowledge to back that up. Traditionally, there's an expectation that if you went to see your tailor, he's an older gentleman in a suit, but you soon, you, you soon realise that what matters is being able to communicate with the client and developing your expertise. So, here we were, myself and Gresham, running a busy tailors in the centre of Brighton. We soon went on to design our own collection of ready-to-wear, which started to attract a whole load of celebrity clientele. <coughs> We have made suits for rock stars to politicians. Often, I'm not sure who the people are that come into my store. When Nick Cave came along to have a suit, I asked him what he did for a living. <laughs> <laughs> he said he was in a band. Now, Gresham's a huge fan of Nick Cave. And uh, he interjected and he said, wow, this, this is Nick Cave. At that point, I think I said something like, wow, you've worked with Kylie Minogue. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a great fan of Kylie. <laughs> Needless to say, Gresham or Nick were, were not too impressed. <coughs> now, we got very busy very quickly, and we quickly lost all balance of life. And my day-to-day -day got so much more stressful than the nine-to-five lifestyle of my previous occupation. We went on to employ a team of staff and, and our employee numbers raised, but what we didn't have was a team of people that were equally as dedicated to our brand. Well, the problem equally was that myself and Gresham were not ready to let go. It was when I went off on maternity leave, not your regular one year, but six weeks, then part-time for around four more months, having left the business to a team that we had failed to inspire as we had been so clingy to our own business and that, that was almost detrimental to us as we had no proper systems or structure in place of how we wanted our team to work which made us more and more controlling and it was a vicious circle. Since then we have made a lot of changes and now I'm pleased to say that we have an amazing team in place and a lot of my team members indeed are female some of my management team are here today, and in between you we have Emily Kilby, who's our Head of E-Commerce. We have Natalie May, um, my Head of Bespoke Tailoring and Ladies Wear Expert. Molly Hopkins, our Corporate Wear Manager and Designer. And Stephanie Simmons, who's, our, who's Gretchen's PA and Designer. So in total we have about 20 employees, and between us we've all developed excellent systems that will ensure that we will all work together as a team. And these systems <coughs> and my team have given us now the confidence to grow the business to where it is today. So we went on to acquire two adjacent, sh adjacent shops next to ours in Brighton. And Brighton is where our head office is. And that's where we have our design team, production team and our workshop. 
Our London store is in the city in Shoreditch and you may all find it interesting to know that after we had a number of male managers in place here that haven't worked out, now fronting our London shop is a female manager who has more skills and professionalism than any of the blokes that we have hired had and she's only 20 years old. <laughs> our corporate head office is in London and this is a very exciting branch of our business. It's a very fast growing sector of our business. We make high-end corporate wear for companies such as <coughs> Soho House Group, including the Ned and Shoreditch House, the Stafford, the Mondrian. And last week, we won a pitch to have a seven-year account to completely redesign the uniform at the Savoy Hotel in London. We also make for a number of local companies, including the Grand Hotel, the Ivy, Ginger Pig, and Riddling Fins. In terms of our ready-to-wear collections, we have to date been making ladies and men's clothing, but we are very excited to announce that we are working in collaboration with Children's Salon and Nickelodeon to bring out later this summer a complete range of children's clothes. Our bespoke tailoring side of the business is the one part that we very much keep tight to rein on and only offer this service in our London and Brighton store. Over the last 20 years, we have built up an amazing client base and we have an excellent team that can make amazing clothes to make it feel really, really great. So at Question Blake, we do have a majority female presence within our team and it has definitely taken a lot of hard work to earn our stripes, or should I say pinstripes, <laughs> in this male-dominated industry and we are thriving. I would never have believed that my two-month two stint at Gresham Blake would have end, end up being more like a 20 years plus lifetime commitment. And we have certainly had our ups and downs. Over the years, we have become stronger and more confident in what we do. I personally love working and creating my, and shaping my own future and would advise anyone that wants to set up on their own, to, first of all, to be sure, is this really what you want to do? and I'm willing to commit all. If it is, take a plunge, be fearless, don't be scared, but do make sure you have a good team to support you and don't forget those all important systems. On being a husband and wife team, the good news is that me and Gresham haven't killed each other yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's particularly good news because we are both very, very competitive people. Um, however, we both have the same sense of urgency and willpower and we both work on two completely different floors in our building. <laughs> Women are different from men, obviously, but difference doesn't equate to weakness. Let's celebrate our differences, respect each other, and learn from each other. We all have something to contribute. We are not women in a men's world, we are women in a diverse world. And that concludes my speech. So we are moving on to Emma now from Creative Assembly. Um, Creative Assembly is a gaming studio that's won multiple awards, including BAFTAs and Ivan Novellos. So I'm really interested to hear more from you, Emma. Hello, thank you for coming out this evening. Um, I'd like to know the celebrities that play some of our games. Um, the only ones I'm aware of are uh, Brian Blessed, who is very loud about <laughs> liking our games. Um, 
but yeah, just I'm I'm like thank you so much for giving me an opportunity to be able to speak with a room of lovely ladies this evening, um, and to share with you a little bit more about the games industry because I think some of us sort of know about it, but we don't really know about it. So I'll let you know more about it as we go on. <laughs> um, but uh, who am I? Who's who's this person here? Um, so I wanted to share some of my experiences about, about CA and about games so we can understand the current trends and uh, the current thinking out there about games, but to be able to know that you should know a bit about me as well. Um, but not to put too many labels on people because I think that that is just as bad as uh, stereotyping. Um, but uh, I am also vertically challenged. I am five foot one, but that has not stopped me from climbing onto all sorts of things to reach the things that I want to get to. Um, including shelves in supermarkets and being caught and making things fall over. Um, I'm, I'm a mum, um, I'm a wife, I'm a very proud Welsh woman, um, but you detect my accent. Um, I'm a Candy Crush whiz, I'm always chasing those levels. Um, <laughs> in the bathroom with an iPhone door locked. Oh, what are you doing in there? I'm just taking time for myself. <laughs> uh, I'm a bookworm, um, I've got multiple books on the go, I've got five at the moment. Um, I'm a comic book nerd, uh, love a graphic novel, so they should be called now I'm a grown up-ish. Um, <laughs> I really want to be Wonder Woman more than anything in the world. Um, I really love swimming open water. I love the freedom of being outside. Um, I'm an endurance sport monster. If, if it's an ultra marathon, give it to me. If it's cycling from here to the other end of the country, give it to me. Um, but I don't want to fit into any of those sort of boxes because I don't think anybody should kind of fit into one of those because we're all complex. We're all made up of lots of different things. Um, and that's something that I've recognised that fits so well in the games industry. We're, we're, we're not what people think that we are. Um, but I'm going to talk more about the capacity of my job and what I do, and I utterly love my job, love it. Um, I'm a talent manager at Creative Assembly, um, which sounds like as if um, I'm a Estelle from Friends, where I find <laughs> talent people and give them opportunities. But that's what it is, it's about opportunities and people and trying to match them up and put them together. Um, and that's what I really, really like about my job. Um, but being able to do it at Creative Assembly is an amazing thing. We've been making games for nearly 31 years. Um, so we're one of, the, one of the oldest studios in the UK, if not Europe. Um, we're a AAA studio, so we make the big games, the ones that you go and buy in the supermarket and from Game and all those other outlets. Um, we've won BAFTAs, we've won Ivor Novellos, lots of other weird awards like uh, Wet Your Pants because it's so scary award. <laughs> That was fun, I liked getting that one. Um, but so we, we're brilliant, and I'm so pleased that I can be a part of bringing new and fresh talent into, um, into such a, a well-established organisation. We're also Horsham's best-kept secret. <laughs> no one really knows that we're there. They think we're a weird cult, because we've got our branded hoodies. And we appear on food market day at the burrito stands and then we scuttle back in. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of who we are. But um, games is a traditionally um, male dominated environment, um, but it is an alien to me. I said I'm from Wales, I grew up pretty much in the middle of nowhere. 
um, in its tiny little mining village called Garndifyth, um, which is beautiful and rugged and parched landscape of a million different colours. Um, but it translates as desolate heap of stones. <laughs> so the opportunities were very minimal where I was brought up. Um, but in my primary school class, there were only 20 of us. Um, 17 of them were boys, and I was one of three girls. So being surrounded by a group of boys was absolutely fine to me, because I got used to them, <laughs> those lovely, lovely fellows. Um, but some of the other places I've worked have been a bit, sort of, a bit weirdy. Um, uh, most notably, British Telecom, Transaction Services, 999 course. I could make this a talk in itself. Yeah. <laughs> it did that for three years, solidly. Um, it was it was quite uh, quite emotional, um, very rewarding as well. Uh, but the gender split was was just so heavily female. Um, even though you think that in those kind of you know high pressure environments you'd expect it to be flip it around, but it wasn't. It was mostly women, hardly any guys. Um, and I was including the management as well, in the senior management role, women. Uh, I also worked for, uh, for the NHS in telephony and patient services, and so including complaints handling. I must really like stressful situations. <laughs> um, I did that for four years. Gender split there again, 70% female. Even my manager, my director, head of department, all women. And then there was a smaller group of men at the right at the top. And then I moved on from there because I felt like I wanted to do something that made a difference in the world. So I went to Citizens Advice Bureau and realised that working for the charity sector, there was a lot less funding than there was at the NHS. Where I had to suddenly start taking my own stationery to work, <laughs> my own tea bags, and I thought I was going to take my own toilet roll at one point. <laughs> <laughs> but it was so different to what I'd been used to. And it was there that that, in those three years, that completely popped my bubble on what I thought was going on in the world. So the gender split there was almost equal. And we covered lots of different areas. But the main thing that we did here at that, at that bureau was we were the uh, only bureau in Wales, undercover part of the South West, that covered employment law advice. So we'd have lots of people come to us for advice where they'd experienced discrimination in the workplace. And because I supported them as an office manager, I got to read up all the cases, all the things that were going on and meet some of these clients that were coming in. Um, and that's when I realised that not everybody thinks the same way as I do, where I just see people as people, because we're all these brilliant, complex things, we're lots of different things that, you know, you don't... Don't, you can't dislike some unusual reason, it was just alien to me. That's when I started thinking differently. And that's when I realised that other people needed to have opportunities. Um, and I realised that diversity wasn't just about gender. Diversity is about the way that we are. It's about, it's about our perceptions of ourselves. It's about other perceptions of us. It's about circumstances. It's about... It's about a sense of belonging, isn't it? And as a woman, we feel like we, when we come together, that we uplift each other and we find that sense of belonging, belonging together. So, how did I go from Citizens Advice Bureau <laughs> to create?
creative assembly where I was like, I want to make a difference in the world. I still want to make a difference, but I want to do something that I really like. And when I saw this job, I was like, oh, that sense of belonging, that feeling like those people that were coming in and felt like they were trying to find a home, that they were at that place in their workplace and that sense of belonging. I felt that. I really wanted to work there. I'm a gamer at heart. I love playing games. I grew up playing games. And when I found the job advertised, I absolutely went for it. It was a choice of there, the caravan club, or medical <laughs> supplies company that made stockings and petri dishes. So this was really attractive to me. <laughs> Inside, I absolutely exploded when I found out that this is a place I felt like I belonged, I felt like I found my tribe. When I had my induction at Sega, I'm not going to lie, I stood in front of the Sonic, the hedgehog statue, <laughs> and I had just like, <laughs> pictures taken with it, somebody came in with Sonic the Hedgehog, I was all over it, it was great. <laughs> I truly felt like I'd died and gone to Nerdvana. It <laughs> and I recognised that actually that's the place where people's hobbies are places that they get paid to do their hobby, and they were really happy. And it just felt like it was really uplifted after being somewhere like Citizens Advice Bureau and NHS and 999, when it was all making a difference, making a difference, we love what we do. It was so much lighter. And the team were amazing. And you could, you could almost reach out and touch their passion and, and what they cared about, what they were doing. It was amazing. But what struck me was, where are all the women? It was me and three other women in the whole company when I started. There was about 120, 130 of us, nearly 500 now. Um, the numbers have changed somewhat, thankfully. So Lucy, is around about 18% now? Yeah, I think it's 17.7. We'll call it 18%. It's about 18% now. Um, but that, that's, that's, on, that's on the gender split. But actually, just as a group, we're far more diverse now. Um, but so this, we're all the women. We're all the people from BME backgrounds. Um, where, where are the people from different backgrounds? Where are the people from other countries? Where are they? Where are they? Where are they? And how can we change things? Because diversity is the key to innovation, right? So as I spent more time at the company and spending time with the senior leaders, um, we really recognise that diversity really is going to breed our innovation and give us new ideas and look at things in a completely different way. Because we recognise you have a, a group of guys in a room and they've all come from the same background, they've all done the same course, they're all thinking the same way. <coughs> Bring in a lady, different perspective, come in, different ideas, different backgrounds, completely changes everything. Changes the way that they communicate with each other as well. They stop shouting over the top of each other and it becomes a far more constructive conversation. Although sometimes I have caught myself shouting over the top of them to be heard and catching on to their behaviours. We don't need to do that, do we, ladies? No, we don't. Uh, so it kind of, it became a mission for, for me and the leadership in the company and us as a whole to really change the tide on things and be utterly committed to making sure that people understand their opportunities out there to come into the games industry. So in 2014 is where I launched the Legacy Project and it's something I feel really, really passionate about. It's actually the same year my daughter was born. And when she was born, 
I looked at her and I thought, I don't want her to live a life where she thinks that those opportunities are not open to her. Because if you're bold and you're brave and you're curious and to give things a go and not be scared of failing, then the world's your oyster. So that, that was the kind of the thinking and the passion. She really compounded that for me. God bless her. Um, so yeah, we, we're working solidly to go some of these things, but there are a lot of misconceptions out there in games. Um, so uh, the next one uh, is about this. <laughs> it's so wrong, it's untrue. There are 170 different job titles at CA alone, right? It is a real career, it's a professional environment. It's not, uh, it's not like it was, not bedroom coders. Um, we have finance teams, we have marketing and PR departments that are big, they're vast. We've communications teams, we've got uh, a, a really big HR department, we've got data analysts, we've got AI technicians, we've got live service, <coughs> live games operations, as well as amazing artists, concept artists, technical artists, technical animators, production teams, it, it, it's just fast, it's fast. We've got people that make YouTube videos to sell our products, that's actually a job. That's a job that pays well, and it's really competitive. So this is wrong, wrong, probably wrong. <laughs> it couldn't be more wronger. This one, actually, I heard from uh, someone at a STEM talk in Sussex. This was uh, one of the questions that somebody came up with. Uh, they said, well, getting a job in the games industry is like going through the X Factor. No, it's not. There's not just one job out there. Um, that number's actually changed, actually. I did check it again this morning. It's uh, 2,260 studios in the UK. Yeah, most of them are around about 50 people or more. We're a bit of an outlier because there's more of us. But there are ample opportunities out there. Just looking at our studio, we've got 40 jobs open at the moment. Um, another company that's uh, on the edge of London, they've got another 40. There's another one uh, that's uh, with Warner Brothers, they've got another 30. But, you know, that's just 90 jobs alone, as well as the ones that are new and emerging, um, the trainee positions, the graduate roles, as well as the more senior ones as well. So those opportunities are absolutely out there. So no, it's not like the X Factor, and we don't have Simon Cowell. We don't have people sitting behind desks making you sing and say silly things. It's just, it's just not out there. Men find it easier to get jobs in games than women. Oh, it's so wrong. <laughs> it's so very wrong. We know it's wrong because women have equal rights and we have laws to protect these. But actually, the guys want it to be diverse. They don't want to hire the guys. They want people that are different to them. They, they want more people to come into the industry that are that are different and, and you know this thing we're saying that you know they just they, you know even the way we make the characters or they just make it because they're trying to make them look sexy no they don't even think about it until we go and give them the opportunity it's never going to change right so that's that's they're all so wrong that's just a couple of them that we've got there so the games industry in, especially in the UK is incredibly successful. We made 4.33 billion. <coughs> we made a lot of money. Thanks to Grand Theft Auto. Way! <laughs> uh, <laughs> <great> <laughs> product. 
um, but we actually made more than, um, than film and music sales combined in 2016. You've stacked those two on top of each other in figures and games are still over the top of it. And people don't realise that. Parents don't realise that. School teachers don't realise that. But if I tell you guys, and you tell other people, and then you tell other people, then perhaps some of the children or the people that are coming through or graduates, or people are interested in games and telling a story and making an immersive world for other people to enjoy, there might be a home for them in games. So if we have a more diverse set of people, we'll have new ideas, we'll be far more creative, be even more innovative and the games industry can be that shining jewel in the crown for, for us and we can keep on being one of the best in the world because I know that we can be that. So we want to keep on telling stories, creating new worlds, new characters, new writers, come see me later if you're a writer. Um, even characters that we really, really love to hate. We need fresh new thought. We need new ideas, new ways of problem solving, and, and, and you, you are the key to it. We all need to work together. And it doesn't just apply to games. It could be any organisation that you work with. It's about singing a positive song about what you do and where you work and breaking down those misconceptions, those myths, those barriers, and really be an ambassador for, for women in business, because I know we can all be that way. So... We can all just push that door open. It's not about pushing the door open, actually. It's about kicking it open, putting a fire extinguisher in front of it, breaking the rules, and leaving the door open, and just letting as many people come through the door and see that they can be more than they thought they could be because society's told them they could be something else. And that's me. Fantastic. Um, and then we're moving on to our final speaker of the evening, um, Rachel Adams. Uh, come down from the Telegraph in London. This is what being my friend gets you as a demand to come to Brighton at the end of a working day and speak to people. Um, and Rachel has the longest job title of anyone tonight, the Commercial Editor, Business and Finance. So I'll hand over to you. Thanks. Um, hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me and to Fow and Emma for their great talks too. I was actually feeling so nervous on the way down here. This is the first talk I've ever done. Um, but then I went for a walk on the seafront and had a pistachio ice cream, and now I feel fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, after this 16 minute and 43 second talk, you will know three things. One, how I ended up in financial journalism. Two, how I got over feeling like a fraud. And three, why feeling like a man isn't necessarily a bad thing. So a bit about me. I'm 32 and I have got a very long job title. Um, I'm the commercial editor for business and finance at The Telegraph, which means I run all the business and finance branded content campaigns across the newspaper, website, podcast and videos. And for those of you not familiar with branded content, it occupies this weird middle ground between advertising, because we work for clients, and editorial, because we're a team of editors <coughs> who commission and edit stuff that appears in The Telegraph. I manage a team of three people and spend my days trying to think of creative ways to approach campaigns about pensions, small business banking and printer ink. Yes, it's varied. <laughs> um, so how did I get here? When I was growing up, I always wondered which fashion magazine I'd end up editing. Would it be Vogue? Would it be Sunday Times Style? Would it be ID? 
or maybe it would be a music magazine, seeing as I hungrily devoured the copy of Koran that my mum brought back from Sainsbury's every week. <laughs> Actually, it would turn out to be none of the above, although I did have a very brief stint editing the fashion pages of a 60s music magazine called Shindig and interning on the fashion desk at Tatler, which was a different experience altogether. <laughs> <laughs> so um, despite my best attempts to be the next Anna Winter, how have I ended up working in advertising, not even journalism, and being a finance editor, which I did not plan? Um, so can I get a rewind? During my first ever journalism job, being a research assistant at the Reader's Digest about 10 years ago, basically being a fact checker, my editor told me she thought I'd make a great financial journalist after I worked on a banking article. I literally laughed in her face. <laughs> and when I told my mum, she laughed in my face. How we laughed. Um, I'm terrible at maths even worse at managing my own money, and I had literally no interest in finance. But my manager's prediction would turn out to be true. Three years later, the incoming editor of the Reader's Digest, Jill Hudson, who launched Company Magazine, told me to either shape up or leave the company. Basically, I was completely disinterested in my role there after having a boss, a female boss, who constantly undermined me. I had zero confidence in my abilities as a journalist, and I was frankly a pain in the ass. So I decided to quit with no job to go to. I applied for every journalism job going, food magazines, fashion magazines, business papers, you name it. But the job I got offered was features writer for a paper called Money Marketing. It's a trade paper aimed at independent financial advisors or IFAs. Um, I'm not gonna lie, I didn't even know what an independent financial advisor was even after the interview. <laughs> um, but you know, I was desperate. I was DJing most Thursdays and Fridays and I needed the money to keep me in records and stylish outfits. So picture the scene. It's my first day in the money marketing offices in Soho. I walk in, resplendent in my Motley Crew t-shirt, bleach asymmetric bob and PVC trousers, and was greeted with steely gazes from the entire news desk, which was pretty much all male. I felt so intimidated and totally out of place. And this is actually a feeling that I still get even after eight years as a finance journalist. It's called imposter syndrome, and apparently 70% of us will feel like we're gonna be found out as a phony at some stage in our lives. It's generally believed to be a sort of gender-based phenomenon more affecting women, maybe because we experience the double whammy of being disadvantaged in the workplace and having these kinds of involuntary sense of feeling like we're not good enough. But more on that later. For me personally, it comes from being in a career that I didn't intend to be in and having absolutely no financial or mathematical background, which most financial editors do. For example, when I worked at Witch as a pensions expert, my imposter syndrome was off the scale. <laughs> Part of my role was to answer pensions queries from readers, which I just found terrifying. I couldn't believe these people would actually trust me to help them invest their life savings. I'm not joking, I had visions of being sent to prison for giving fraudulent <laughs> advice to all these poor old people whose queries I responded to went on this morning and called me like the face of evil or something. <laughs> But I managed to get over this, um, and there are kind of three things I do to get over feeling like a bit of a fraud. So first of all, a bit of fear can be a good thing, I think. It means you're being challenged and you're still hungry to do the best job you can. So in a way, embrace it. Second of all, fake it till you make it. I never actually realised how pertinent this phrase was until I sat down to start working on this talk, but it's actually spot on. When I first started at The Telegraph, and I'd have to pitch my content ideas to potential clients, inside I'd be thinking, holy fuck, they are going to know I have no clue about investing for income or loans for startup businesses and I'm going to be laughed right out of the room. But at the start of every pitch, I would confidently run through my career history for the client. 
I've been a finance journalist for this many years, I've won these awards, I've worked for these papers. And saying this out loud works as a sort of positive affirmation. I'd be like, I do have tons of experience. I do know what I'm talking about. And doing this enough actually makes me feel more confident and not like some massive financial imposter. Um, and the third thing, big yourself up. While I think letting your accomplishments speak for themselves is a good thing, I think as women, and particularly as women in male-dominated environments, sometimes we need to push ourselves out there a bit more, even if it means feeling uncomfortable. If you've done something great, tell your boss or send an email. When one of my ideas books as a campaign, I email my boss and our head of project management, and I walk over to the senior bank of desks and literally announce it to whoever's listening. <laughs> the first few times I did this, I felt like a total dickhead, just standing there, <laughs> expecting praise. Um, but when I mentioned it to one of my male colleagues, he said, why do you feel like a dickhead? We all do it, and it's the only way to get recognised. So imposter syndrome is one thing I've learned to kind of deal with in my career, but there's also been the way some men interact with and treat women in the workplace. While this is obviously by no means limited to financial journalism, it's a very male-dominated sector, as Georgina mentioned earlier, so it can be a bit of an issue. One of my tasks in an early journalism job was to do weekly profile interviews with hedge fund managers, advisors, and other key figures in financial services. It goes without saying that they were pretty much all men. In my two years in the job, I interviewed maybe 10 women for the profiles, and my very first profile interview was a, with, with a pension advisor in this massive mahogany panelled office in Bank in the City. As soon as I walked into the room with my dictaphone and my notebook, the interviewee said, that's a nice short skirt. <laughs> Being in my early 20s and brand new to the job, I just laughed nervously, did the interview and got the hell out of there. But it wouldn't be the last time I'd feel a bit uncomfortable working in finance journalism. Plenty of times at meetings, even now, I get mistaken for the PA, while my male colleagues get mistaken for the editor. Fortunately, I quite like the element of surprise it creates when I reveal I'm actually a finance editor. <laughs> um, since I've worked at The Telegraph as well, I've had to attend dinners with investment companies at places like the Carlton Club. It's known as the oldest and most important conservative club in Britain and only started accepting female members in 2008, which gives you an idea of the kind of place it is. Um, once when I was sitting in the reception there waiting for my Uber home after hosting clients with the Telegraph's personal finance editor, a very old, very posh gentleman bumbled over to me and bellowed in my face, what are you doing here? This is men only, you know. I politely replied that I was a guest, but looking back, that moment does seem rather representative of my career as a whole. And in another job I had, working for a big male-dominated trade finance paper, one of the senior male members of the team would consistently sexually harass me at work events. Once, in a pub after a daytime of drinking at an awards ceremony, he started kissing my bare back. Yeah. And when I mentioned it to my boss, my female boss, her response was, that's just the way he is. I figured he paid my salary and it was easier to put up with it and look for another job, which I did pretty swiftly. Although I recognise now that's maybe not the best way to deal with that sort of situation. I do feel my boss probably could have done more, but she was one of the only senior women in the department. Perhaps she felt hamstrung. To caveat though, not all the men I've encountered have been sexist or creepy or both. My first boss at Money Marketing was great and plenty of my male and female colleagues have become friends. But what's it like working at The Telegraph? I've been there for nearly three years now, and I started as a commissioning editor for financial branded content, another catchy title, <laughs> and moved up to be the commercial editor for the business and finance branded campaigns. I absolutely love it there. 
but I'm sure you've all heard about the Telegraph's gender pay gap. While 9% is common across most sectors, at the Telegraph, the women in the business get paid 35% less than the men, on average. Because I sit in advertising rather than the newsroom, this isn't actually really reflected in my day-to-day -day working environment. I sit with three other commercial editors, two of whom are men, and I feel pretty well respected, which might be because in my most recent performance review, I insisted to my boss that I got the top rating. So my earlier point about putting yourself out there and singing your own praises can pay off. Also, in the Telegraph's advertising department, we have a lot of women in senior positions. Our COO is a woman, our head of digital is a woman, and my boss is a woman. But in the newsroom, it's a pretty different story. Predictably, on the lifestyle, fashion, and beauty desks, women hold senior positions. But in every other department, sport, politics, finance, culture, you name it, the men hold the more senior roles. I'll go into more detail on this in a second, but I just want to mention that our CEO has actually committed to having a zero gender pay gap by 2025, which is pretty bold, but I think it's a terrific statement of intent for newspaper publishing as a whole. So, things are moving in the right direction, but there is still a lot more to be done. I would love to see a female personal finance or business editor at The Telegraph. And actually, there was a study last year of The Guardian, Times, FT and Mail, and it found that two-thirds of all the articles in the news and business sections of those paper were written by men even though more women than men enter the journalism profession at undergraduate level. This clearly shows women just aren't progressing to the same extent as men in journalism. And actually, a study done by Reuters a year ago of 700 UK journalists concluded that actually female journalists are less well paid than men and underrepresented in senior positions, which is pretty damning. Now, some of this could be down to women being more likely to take career breaks to care for children, meaning they don't ascend to senior positions as quickly or even at all. I'm pleased that returnships for mums coming back to work after having children are becoming more widespread, as well as the increasing popularity of flexible working too. But the nature of working in newsrooms means flexible working isn't always possible. News can break at any time, for starters, and the hours in newsrooms are typically long, irregular and demanding. For many working mums, it can't be possible to balance the two which is why we end up with women being underrepresented in senior newsroom positions. But saying this, I don't actually think the lack of female progression to senior journalism roles, particularly in business and finance, is all down to the childcare issue. You're probably all familiar with Sheryl Sandberg's mighty tome, Lean In. She actually talks a lot about the imposter syndrome I mentioned earlier. And although I took a lot away from that book, the main thing was that it's internal obstacles that could hold women back. Firstly, it's a common saying that women will only go for jobs where they meet 100% of the criteria and they feel like they can do it all, whereas men will go for jobs where they only meet 50% of the criteria and they'll bullshit half of it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but as women, we have to get a lot more comfortable with being uncomfortable because we're actually capable of a lot more than we think. And far be it from me to advocate thinking like a man, but being self-confident and, yeah, maybe even a bit better at bullshitting and faking it till we make it could be the difference between staying in our current roles or progressing even further. Secondly, and I know it's been controversial, but I do think Sheryl Sandberg is 100% right in saying that women's natural desire to be liked can prevent us from pushing for leadership roles. We're not at work to be liked. Of course, it's great to have work pals. The number of Love Island WhatsApp groups I have with colleagues is frankly <laughs> astounding, and good colleagues can make going to work so much better. And it's not that career progression and being liked are mutually exclusive either. 
I just think sometimes we have to get a bit more selfish when it comes to our career paths. Look at Destiny's Child. I'm pretty sure... <laughs> I'm pretty sure Beyonce would not be described as the nice one over Kelly and Michelle. She's the one opening the Super Bowl. But there is still a balance to be had. Beyonce still supports her fellow women, from Rihanna to Nicki Minaj and even Hillary Clinton. Being selfish in your career doesn't mean you can't support other women to be selfish in theirs. But I didn't always think like this. It's taken me a little while to come to terms with the fact that being successful doesn't necessarily mean being popular. Last September, I went for a promotion to the role that I've got now. My only competition was the business commissioning editor, a guy who was a couple of years younger than me, had been at the company a bit longer than me, and who we'd, I'd worked together with him on campaigns up till then. So I got the promotion, um, and several months of difficulty followed. Going back to my point about trying to be liked, at first I went for the super friendly approach, um, and I'm sort of ashamed to say I was even apologetic about getting the promotion, because I really wanted this guy to not be upset and to still enjoy his job. This did not work. <laughs> Things got more and more awkward between us as I was trying to be super nice and he was still clearly really disappointed about missing out on this promotion. I just wanted to be a cool boss. I had a few months of this tension, during which I was diagnosed with chronic sinusitis brought on by stress, which lasted for five months. So I was like, enough is enough. So I gathered some verbatims from team members and I sat down with him and I told him that even though I got that he felt disheartened after not getting promoted, while he worked for me, he had to do his job to the level I knew he was capable of. During this chat, it emerged that he was keen to expand his experience, so I arranged with our head of branded content sales for him to shadow her. Now he does a lot more work with her, and surprise, surprise, my relationship with him is so much better. The lesson from this? Once I stopped trying to be his mate and started try trying to be his boss, he respected me a lot more, and it has really improved my day-to-day -day life. It is worth noting, though, that I wouldn't have had the balls to sit down with him if it hadn't been for my own support networks at work. Going back to my earlier point about Beyonce and being career selfish, I do think women should support each other, especially in the workplace, because who else is going to do it for us? And we can be a pretty formidable force when we put our minds to it. That is me. I'm talking to a quite exciting speaker and she's very difficult to get into her diary so I can't tell you what it is yet but as soon as it's confirmed for the date it'll be in about two months time um, and I will send you an email with it. Um, in the meantime you can like us on Facebook please because I'll also put an update there um, you can look out for the 9% event podcast on iTunes and you can listen to what everyone said tonight and you can send it to your friends and uh, you can follow me on Twitter you can follow me on Instagram and please 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 tag your photos and statuses um, on social media with the number 9% event. Um, I don't have photographer tonight and I'd love to see some more photos. So anything you want to add on social media, I'd love to see. Thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate you all being here and all being so lovely. And thank you to the speakers and good night. <laughs> <laughs>